But if you have a Bible, if you do have it open to John chapter 3, um, as we look at this together, please bow your heads as I pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I want to start by asking a question. Have you ever been wrong about something? The laughter says no, I guess, in that case. Uh, Have you ever had such a strong conviction about something and you go around telling people about it and and you see it as your mission to educate the world around you about this subject or idea, but all along, you'd got it wrong. You misunderstood. This happens to me almost Every day as a father, let me tell you an insight into my world, Uh, my son might come running down the stairs crying and screaming and holding a part of his body which is hurt and he mumbles something uh, about his sister and I I can't quite make it out but I've heard enough to know that there's big trouble coming. So I march upstairs full of righteous fury and anger and I, I tell her off. No one else does, I'm sure. I mean, this, is, this, is, this is just my evil heart. Uh, and now she's crying and she's protesting that it wasn't her. And she's, she's trying to explain and I'm not really listening because I know what happened. Voices are raised, doors are slammed, and I come downstairs knowing that I have administered justice. Because I was right. And I hug my precious son, my daughter's precious too, but in this moment I hug my precious son and I get him to explain. And to my shame, I realize that she was trying to help him not hurt him. Now, if you've ever been in this kind of situation, you'll know that you're left with a dilemma, aren't you? I can either stay locked into my original charge that maybe my son now feels sad that his sister got told off, and so he's saying something different in order to make her feel better. Maybe that's the case, option one. Option two, I can pretend like nothing happened. I can turn on the TV and just carry on until it all blows over and lunchtime comes. Option three, I can go upstairs and humbly apologize for getting it wrong. And do so in a way that is genuinely repentant, not the kind of backhanded apology like, I'm sorry I told you off, but if you hadn't done this, then that wouldn't have happened. That's not a real apology, is it? Have you ever believed something so strongly that when you're confronted with an alternative view, you just can't accept it out of pure stubbornness. In our reading today, we meet a man who is so convinced about something that when he encounters the truth, he struggles to accept it. And what God is saying to us this morning through his word is this. Live by the light of Jesus. Sorry, live by the truth in the light of Jesus. Live by the truth in the light of Jesus. We're in week three of our new Encounters with Jesus series, and this week we meet Nicodemus. Uh, Over this series, over these few weeks that we look at these characters together, uh, we're being encouraged to see ourselves, perhaps, in some of these characters. Now, for some of us, there may be more truth in the character we meet than for others. Uh, So as we go through this gospel, see how this person might overlap onto you and your world. What do we know about Nicodemus? famous name. All that we know about him comes from John's gospel alone. He doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. And we meet him in the gospel three times. Here in chapter three with Nick at night and Jesus. Again in chapter seven 
uh, when the Jewish leaders are deciding what to do about Jesus' growing popularity. And then finally, we meet him near the end of the gospel at Jesus' burial, and we'll look at that particular encounter on Good Friday in our series. So what do you know about him? Well, firstly, he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a group of, I'm not telling you something you probably don't really know, but a, a group of Jews who were very precise about keeping to the laws God had given. And, and were a bit like the legal police, making sure that all were living as perfectly as possible in that day and age. They were well-educated, they were quite shrewd. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. Now, lots of us here hear the word Pharisee today, and we know a little bit about the Bible, we'll probably think this is a really negative word. A bit like a slur, really, isn't it? Oh, you're such a Pharisee, we might say. We have this idea of the Pharisees being the party police going around and spoiling everyone's fun. Come on, just, you know, knock anyone, but you might imagine them like a, a geeky administrative type going around and saying, uh, paragraph three of bylaw six states that you can't eat biscuits within two meters of the corner of the coffee counter, so you'll need to move and eat your biscuits elsewhere, please. That's the kind of idea we have about these Pharisees. But that's giving them a hard rap, isn't it? I mean, at heart, the Pharisees were so convinced that God was real, and they were so convinced about what he'd said in his holy book, the, the law of God, that they just wanted everyone to live in a way that pleased God. I mean, that's not a bad thing, is it? It's an honorable thing. Shouldn't we want to do the same today? Pharisees knew the laws of God really well, really well. But they'd some become so engrossed in the detail of the law that they lost sight of what the law was all about, God's love. And so often when we meet the Pharisees in the pages of scriptures, we see them attacking Jesus and Jesus denouncing them over their legalism. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Now Sanhedrin, that's a ruling body of Jewish people. Each city or town could have their own Sanhedrin, which would function like a, a, a little bit like a local court or local branches of government to ensure and enforce proper Jewish living and practice in that part of the Jewish world. And there was a great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, which governed over all the others, kind of like a tiered government structure. It was the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, the great Sanhedrin, who ultimately arranged for Jesus' execution. And we'll get to that a bit later in our series. It seems that Nicodemus was a member of this great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So he's a very prominent guy, an important person in Jerusalem, and probably known more widely as well. So already we're getting this impression that Nicodemus was a prominent and influential member of the Jewish society, who knew his, his law really well, his Bible amazingly. He lives in the largest and most important Jewish city, Jerusalem. He's not a nobody. In modern terms, you could consider Nicodemus like a, a member of the prime minister's cabinet. Or when the monarchy ruled, perhaps a member of the Privy Council for the king. And Nicodemus, with all his education and prestige, he knew what he knew, didn't he? And he was expected to know a lot. And he was expected, his job was, to tell people what he knew. His role was always to be right. His place in society was always to be right. 
And in encountering Jesus, he is wrestling with the fact that he might be wrong about a few major things. So Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus at night. Why? Well, if you do have your Bible open in front of you, uh, you glance your eyes just above our reading and you'll read the moment when Jesus in John's Gospel clears out the temple in Jerusalem from all the people who are desecrating his father's house. And John tells us that the Jews get into a debate at this time with Jesus about what he's doing. Now, when John uses the phrase the Jews in his gospel, it's often shorthand for Jewish leaders. That's what he means when he says the Jews. Uh, so maybe Nicodemus is amongst the people debating with Jesus. Maybe, maybe not. But it's fair to say that he has at least heard about what Jesus has done and is doing. He's heard about what Jesus has been up to. And something has spooked him. Something has affected him enough to want to come and interrogate Jesus for himself. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Now, lots of people read lots into this idea of Jesus, Nicodemus at night. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe uh, Nicodemus was concerned or afraid what other members of Sanhedrin would think about him for meeting Jesus. So he, he comes in the color of darkness. Maybe Jesus was just so busy that this was, this was the only opportunity he had to see him. You know, like if I meet someone from church, I'm unlikely to see you in daytime, but I'll see you in the evening because you're working and I'm working in, in different ways. But Jesus comes in the color of darkness. We don't know why. But who was here in church last week or who watched it online? Who was attacked by balls of wool? Do you remember back in my talk last week uh, that I said that the prologue of John's gospel, he sends out a number of themes and ideas which he then picks up and weaves through his gospel to create this, this beautiful tapestry that points to Jesus. Do you remember the church like a beautiful jumper? Do you remember that? No? Well, we had a mess, didn't we, of, of wool buzzing around the church. Well, those themes that, that John sends out, you know, that include the word and light and life and father and son and believe and darkness, all these themes... A number of them here in our reading, John weaves these strands together. And he starts with darkness. With Nicodemus coming at nighttime, John is telling us that Nicodemus is living in darkness. You remember John chapter 1, verse 5. The light that shines, the light, that's Jesus, the light, that shines in darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Later on in our reading, Jesus focuses on the theme of darkness and light and the choices that people make who live in darkness, who live in a world without Jesus or without God or the Bible to step into the light and truth. Nicodemus is a bright man. He's a learned man, an academic even. He'd be a top lawyer on a legal drama on TV. You know, the witty, smart people, I'm imagining Gina now, witty and smart, able to crack the toughest problems and win the most difficult cases while you're laughing with expert knowledge. But something about Jesus has stumped Nicodemus, is forcing him to reconsider. Had he got it wrong? Had he misunderstood? Nicodemus is not alone in this. Many people, even some of us here in church today, even myself at times, if not all of us, have our own preconceived ideas about who God is, about what he's like, and how we should act. 
I was getting my hair cut the other day, and my barber and I started a conversation about Jesus. Now, now he knows I'm a minister. Uh, we've talked about church a fair bit, but he's always shied away from talking about his faith. Now, I know he's not a Christian, uh, but I wouldn't quite say he's an atheist, as, he, he, as in he doesn't have a faith in nothing. Anyway, uh, he's just finishing off my, my haircut, and I, I slipped Jesus into the conversation, as I do, and, and he said, you know what I think about Jesus? And I could see a smile curling in the corner of his mouth. I thought, this is, this is going to be interesting. This could be, be fun. And he starts saying how he thinks Jesus was actually just a chilled-out dude who probably did drugs and just told people to love each other. You know, that kind of hippie idea of Jesus that a lot of people have. Now, now time was ticking on, and I, I started to challenge what his ideas about Jesus were, and, I, and began with, well, the Bible actually says this about Jesus, and he's like, no, 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 you can't believe what the Bible says. Now, no matter what I said, or how I argued with it, this guy wasn't going to budge, wasn't going to happen. He had an idea in his head about who Jesus was, about what Jesus is like, about how he should act, and he was certain about it. I'm part of the General Synod of the Church of England, which is a bit like the government of the church. When we set the rules and work out legislation and budgets and plans, I'm meeting in, I think, two weeks' time for for a week to to go through things. Now, it's no secret that at the moment the Church of England is in a really tough spot and battling uh, in the Synod um, over long and painful things. At the heart of the disagreement that is in Synod at the moment, the heart of the disagreements in the Church of England and many churches is our beliefs about who God is, about what he is like and how he should act. You might be sitting here today as someone who doesn't yet believe that Jesus is Lord because you have some idea about who Jesus is, if he's even a real figure, about what he's like and about how he should act, and maybe he doesn't meet the standard that you set. And what you've seen and heard doesn't match those expectations or ideas. In the pages of the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, we meet Jesus face to face as he presents himself, as he reveals himself, and we hear what he says about himself. Now, you could say that the Bible, yes, a circular argument, the Bible is its own book and, and we can't really trust that, but you've got nothing else to trust because it's only this that tells you who Jesus is. He tells us, in his own words, that he is the way to have a relationship with God the Father. The only way. No other way. He tells us that he is the truth, that all truth about everything is found in him. And he tells us that he is the life who has promised eternal life to all who believe in him. Whatever ideas and beliefs we bring to scriptures, we need to live by the light. So we live by the truth in the light of Jesus. So Jesus and Nicodemus uh, have a challenging conversation on that dark night. Lots going on here. And Jesus challenges all Nicodemus' beliefs. And Jesus tells Nicodemus that to see the kingdom of God... To enter the kingdom of God, he needs to be born again. Now, the kingdom of God is like another realm, if you like, that overlaps with our world where God's rules and priorities and purposes are being worked out. And all people 
believe that Jesus is Lord, all people live as people of that kingdom as well as in this world. And the king of that kingdom is King Jesus. So Nicodemus believes there is a kingdom. He believes in eternal life. We know the Pharisees believe that. So Jesus is confronting Nicodemus, a, a man who thought he would be a citizen of this kingdom. Nicodemus, in his mind, is part of that kingdom. And yet Jesus is telling him he isn't. He's telling him that to see what the kingdom is, in all its wonder and its glory and its beauty, to be able to enter into it, to live as one of the citizens, verse 7, Jesus says, you must be born again. The implication is that, Jesus, that Nicodemus hasn't been. Now, Jesus is saying a lot in this small phrase, but in its most basic sense, Jesus is saying that becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God is painful and messy. Now, um, I've had the great privilege of seeing both my children being born, and neither was straightforward or pleasant for my wife. If you've seen a child being born, you know that it is painful and messy. If you've experienced it, you know it's painful and messy. Imagine for a moment, just put yourself here if you can, that you are an infant, a baby about to be born. You're an infant in a womb, you're warm and cozy and not having to eat or drink anything. Everything's given to you by this umbilical cord. All your food comes to you through that. You've got no cares or wants in the world. And then, in the hours leading up to your birth, you are squashed and squeezed. You know, the plates of a baby's head, their crown, aren't fused together until many years later so that the plates can actually overlap as they're born to make their heads smaller. Did you know that? And after it's gone through all this trauma of the birth canal, it's, it's forced into a world of bright lights scorching its eyes that's never seen before. And a cacophony of sounds attacking its ears that's never heard, not sheltered or protected from the, the wa water in its womb. Gone is the, the warm embrace of the waters in the womb and instead is the cold reality of life in this world. Its lungs gasp to suck in air, something it's never had to do before. Imagine the trauma that an infant goes through to be born into this world, our world. And Jesus is saying that there is a similar kind of trauma that needs to take place in each of our lives for everyone to enter the kingdom of God. That all that we've known before, all that we've thought before, all that we have uh, that's made us feel comfortable and stable needs to be shaken or removed, perhaps, or thrown away in order for us to enter into the kingdom. It's painful and messy, but it's joyous. For those who do, for those who experience the new birth that the Spirit brings, there is a promise of eternity of love with God the Father. I remember when I was younger, I used to hear people say things like, I'm a born-again Christian. You ever heard someone say that? No? I have. Uh, I didn't know what it meant. I thought it was a certain kind of Christian. Like you had, you know, I'm an Anglican, Church of England, C of E, and then the Baptists over there, and then the, the, the funny born-again types over there. I was wrong. You already know this, I'm sure. This is, this is news to me. But every single Christian 
every single believer, every person who trusts in Jesus as Lord has been born again. They are a born-again Christian. If you are here as a Christian today, you are a born-again Christian. You probably are funny. I mean, just the case of it, we all are, aren't we? And once you're born again, once you've gone through that messy, life-changing, eternity-shaping experience of receiving Jesus as your Lord, then you know the truth. We will meet Nicodemus again after Jesus has died later in our series. At this point in the story with Nicodemus, we don't know where his faith is. We don't know if he is experiencing that new birth. We don't know how he's leaving Jesus. We get a glimpse of something a bit later on chapter 7, but we don't know. At this point for this character in his life, Jesus leaves Nicodemus with a startling challenge. I'm going to read it all. It's from verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Before that, Jesus had said this, light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And then here's that verse again. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The challenge Jesus leaves with Nicodemus is the same challenge he leaves with each of us. Will we live in the light of Jesus? Will we accept the truth about him? Or will we choose to live in darkness? Nicodemus now leaves the pages of scriptures for a few chapters. I pray that as we journey through this gospel, for those of us who believe, that light will be all the more brighter as we try to live by the truth of Jesus. For those of us who are like Nicodemus, who know something, that as we encounter the truth of Jesus and his word, that the light of the gospel will overcome the darkness in our hearts. And for those of us who live in darkness, who haven't seen Jesus at all, that by his spirit, we would receive and experience that messy new birth and the joy of the existence of his kingdom. Please bow your heads and pray. Father God, we thank you for Nicodemus and what he shows us about life in your kingdom. We thank you that by Jesus' life in our place, and his death in our place, and his resurrection for us, we may all experience the new birth of your kingdom and become citizens of your kingdom. Lord, help us to always live by the light of your Son. And for those of us who do live in darkness, overcome our darkness by your Spirit and bring us into your eternal kingdom.